if it weren't for courageous people like Mr. Salas and, you know, pain in the asses like myself who feel this <laughs> needs to be talked about, public wouldn't know about this. Ladies and gentlemen, we And now, ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio, with your host, Tim Banal. What is going on, my friends? This is Tim Banal of BanalofAmerica.com, with another edition of BOA Audio Season 5. We're coming at you much later than expected here this week, and with a couple of different guests than originally expected We had Marie Jones and Larry Flaxman on deck to appear here on the show this week, but they had to cancel at the last minute, thus throwing BOA Audio into chaos. But we've managed to right the ship and not only have this week's edition of the program here for you, but have a bunch of really cool episodes either already taped or already lined up to be taped for future editions of the show. Don't worry, Marie and Larry will be back on BOA Audio here during Season 5. But in their stead, we have a couple of really fascinating guests here for you on the program. You've heard the first guest previously on the show way back in BOA Audio Season 2. I'm talking about Robert Hastings, esteemed UFO researcher. He has focused in on the UFO connection with nuclear weapons bases and has unearthed just an amazing array of witnesses to that strange connection. And alongside Robert Hastings is notable UFO slash nuke witness Bob Salas. Obviously, this is Bob Salas's first appearance on BOA Audio, and I am very excited to get a chance to have him on the program, not only because I have heard tremendous things about Bob Salas from all different corners of the world of ufology, but also because he had a first-hand experience seeing this UFO nuke connection in action back when he was serving in the Air Force in 1967 and subsequently had the guts to take his story public in the early 1990s. In this conversation, we're going to get an update from Robert Hastings on his research into the UFO nuke connection. We'll find out about Bob Salas' UFO encounter in March of 1967 at Malmstrom Air Force Base. The duo will reflect on their appearance on Larry King Live from back in 2008. We'll get into some of the tangential aspects of the UFO nuke connection, such as nuclear submarines and nuclear power plants. We'll find out what the pair thinks is really going on with UFOs hovering over nuclear facilities. And they'll detail their impending press conference at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C., scheduled for September 27th. Altogether, it is a fast-paced conversation that covers a hugely important but all-too-often-overlooked area of the UFO phenomenon, with both the researcher who has studiously investigated the story, Robert Hastings, as well as a primary witness to the phenomenon, that being Bob Salas. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Robert Hastings and Bob Salas, I'm going to give you their bios right now. Luckily, they are fairly short 
Robert Hastings is a noted UFO researcher and lecturer who has interviewed nearly 100 U.S. Air Force veterans who were involved in nuclear weapons-related UFO incidents. He has interviewed retired military personnel regarding their knowledge of nuclear weapons-related UFO activity and has taken his findings and presented them to colleges and universities nationwide. He's also the author of the book, UFOs and Nukes. His website is www.ufohastings.com. Pretty simple, all one word, ufohastings.com. Next, allow me to provide you with a little background on Bob Salas. Captain Bob Salas graduated from the Air Force Academy and spent seven years in active duty from 1964 to 1971. He's also held positions at Martin Marietta and Rockwell and spent 21 years at the FAA. In the Air Force, he was an air traffic controller and a missile launch officer, as well as an engineer on the Titan III missiles. Unfortunately, Bob Salas has no website, but he is the co-author of the book Faded Giant with Jim Klotz. Be sure to check that out. And once again, check out Robert Hastings' website, www.ufohastings.com, for more information on UFOs and nukes, as well as their impending press conference at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. And now, without any further ado, let's rock and roll. This interview was recorded on July 1st, 2010, Robert Hastings and Bob Salas talking about the UFO nuke connection on BOA Audio Season 5. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of Been All of America Audio. Very excited about this week's program, bringing back a former guest here. It's been quite a while since I talked to him, and he's been doing quite a bit since the last time I talked to him. And it was just such a hazy period in my life when we did our original interview that I'm really looking forward to having him back on the program. He is Robert Hastings, the author of UFOs and Nukes. The website ufohastings.com is his site. He is a just masterful researcher of the connection between UFOs and nuclear weapons, nuclear weapons bases, just a myriad of amazing UFO sightings at nuclear bases that probably most of the people in the mainstream don't know about just yet. But uh, he's working on something big to hopefully alert the public about all this. And alongside him here this week, we've got probably one of the most famous uh, UFO witnesses ever, at least uh, in the contemporary age. He is Bob Salas. He's very well known for his March 1967 UFO sighting at the Maelstrom Air Force Base. He's probably told the story about a million times, and I'm afraid we're going to have to have him tell the story again, but I'm sure he won't mind. Uh, and he's also the co-author of Faded Giant with Jim Klotz. So they're both here on the program to talk about UFOs and nukes, as well as a big project they're working on right now that will hopefully uh, come to light towards the end of the summer. So welcome back to the show, Robert Hastings, and welcome to the show, Bob Salas. Thank you much. Thank you, Tim. It's good to have you back, Robert. It's good to meet you, Bob. I've heard just... Just a whole host of tremendous things about you across the board uh, from all different sorts of people, so it's it's great to get you on the program here. Robert Hastings, we'll start with you. What have you been up to in the last three years since we talked? I know when we first had you on the show back in 07, you were working on the book, and it was nearly done. The book's come out since then. Uh, you know, what's been going on for you? The book was published in July of 08. Uh, the same month, Bob Salas and I were on Larry King with two other former Air Force officers, uh, gentlemen like Bob who were involved in nuclear weapons-related incidents. Uh, I've simply been plugging along since then. Uh, the high-profile publicity I got through Larry King uh, generated a number of leads, uh, dozens of leads, actually, from ex 
Air Force personnel, primarily uh, some Navy, some Army, who were involved in uh, incidents of this type where uh, UFOs were near uh, or directly over nuclear weapon sites, either missile silos or weapon storage areas, and uh, on some occasions, uh, like in the case of Mr. Salas, uh, weapons malfunctioned, uh, missiles went all haywire uh, when these objects were present near them. So the work continues. Uh, programs like yours uh, obviously allow me to present my data to a large audience, and that in turn generates leads. Uh, once I've been approached by somebody, I vet them and check their military service records and other credible information and uh, find out whether or not I consider, consider them to be a, a reliable source. And fortunately, 99% uh, of the people who approach me are indeed credible. They pan out. They're not hoaxers. They're not liars. And uh, so it's just an ongoing thing for me. Uh, it's my life's work, basically. Nice. Well, I mean, you've done just a tremendous amount of work. Uh, the UFO community's indebted to you for what you've done, because I don't know too many other people that have picked up this difficult subject to investigate. Bob Salas, obviously, as I said, you're very famously well-known for this March 1967 UFO incident. So for the folks who are tuning in who haven't heard you anywhere else before or haven't heard this story before, maybe you've only heard it, you know, in the distant past. Maybe you should uh, sort of refresh us here and, and share your story of uh, this UFO sighting at Malstrom Air Force Base, March 1967. Okay, sure. In uh, 1967, I was in the Air Force uh, uh, station at Malstrom Air Force Base. I was a first lieutenant. Uh, and the day in question, I was on missile duty or alert status at Oscar Flight, which is uh, one of the, I think, 15 flights of 10 missiles that we had at Malmstrom. So each flight is a flight of 10 missiles. I was in a, what's called a launch control center, which is a concrete capsule underground, about 60 feet underground. There's me and my commander. I was a deputy at the time in the capsule, and we had about, uh, I'd say, four to six guards security guards upstairs, when I say upstairs, I mean topside, yeah. and uh, we had kind of a, it looked like a farmhouse where the, we had the cook and the, and the guards uh, had small rooms there, and they had basically, uh, you know, weapons and, uh, and communication gear upstairs, they had no control over any of the missiles, we had all the, um, all the computers, all the controls downstairs. At any rate, on this uh, particular night, and I, I say night, I, I'm, 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 it could have been early in the morning. I'm, I'm just not sure of the time. Yeah. I do. It was dark. It was dark outside. I get a call from uh, a flight security controller. Uh, he's the main guard up there who's watching over things, and he tells me that they're seeing some strange lights up there in the sky, and they're flying at uh, high speeds and making erratic maneuvers. Stopping on a dime, changing direction, and um, absolutely silent. They, they don't hear any engine noise. They, they don't understand what the hell these lights are. Well, I listened to this, and I didn't. I didn't know what to think of it. You know, I, I didn't pay much attention, really. Yeah. And then uh, uh, five minutes later, well, I hung up. Then five minutes later, he calls back, and this time he's he's uh, very agitated, screaming into the phone, yelling that he's looking at a, a glowing red object hovering above the front gate. 
and uh, this object is oval shaped. It's um, uh, he estimated about uh, 30 to 40 feet in diameter. Uh, it was glowing red, pulsating. The guards were all out there with their guns, their weapons, and um, and uh, he wanted me to give him some instruction on what to do next. So. <laughs> Uh, not ever having any, had that experience, I, I didn't quite know what to tell him. I think I said, uh, make sure nothing comes inside the perimeter fence, uh, obviously. And uh, and about that time, he had to hang up. Uh, one of the guards got injured. Now, now let well. me stop you for a second because I've heard this. I've heard your story a few times, and I've always kind of wondered how exactly the guard got injured. Did he you like? Know, what was he doing? Was he I, climbing the fence? But why? I'm confused about all that. I, I I surmise he was uh, very frightened. Okay. And we had um, we had barbed wire at the top of the perimeter fence, and uh, uh, it, this is a very frightening thing. Uh, I've heard this from other witnesses, and of course, even even the guards later on. Well, uh, let me continue this story. Yeah. And I'll I'll, uh, I'll uh, tell you a little bit more about that. But um, so he um, uh, hangs up the phone. Um, I go over to wake up my commander, Fred Mywald, who is, uh, by the way, still living and uh, and uh, has supported my story. I wake him up and tell him about uh, the phone calls, or start to tell him, and all of a sudden we get some bells and whistles going off. And I look at the uh, status panel. We have a panel down there that shows the status of the missiles. Yep. And they're starting to go into a unlaunchable mode, a fault mode, no, no-go, what we call it no-go condition mm-hmm. and um, I recall we lost uh, all ten of them uh, <clears throat> while this object was still up there because it was uh, you know within a few seconds of, of that phone call uh, so we go into our procedures we uh, uh, Fred calls the command post I I call upstairs because we also got some security lights in other words security incursion mm-hmm. at the launch facilities where the missiles are actually located and uh, I, I, I sent guards, uh, a team of guards out to those sites. By this time, the um, UFO is gone. Uh, Fred turns to me then after he reports the command post and said the, the same thing happened at another site. And I recall that vividly, uh, you know, trying to, and trying to recall the memory of, of this event. That's one thing I do recall uh, so vividly, him turning to me and, and saying, yeah, the same thing happened at another site. Uh, that's that's basically the story. Of course, uh, I can I can fill in more details about what happened later, but I think that's the gist of it. I mean, like that's I said, I think most folks have heard. Now, here's the obvious sort of question. Maybe you've gotten this one before, but do you ever get tired of telling the story? Because I'm sure that you've had hmm. to tell the story probably in the thousands of times at this point. Do you ever say, you know, go look it up, asshole, something like that? <laughs> Uh, answer is no. I don't get tired <laughs> of telling the story because it's uh, even even today, after uh, I don't know forty forty some years, um, it believe me gives me a, a little chill just just to talk about it. Oh because, yeah, uh, I'm I'm reliving the whole thing, and it, it was something very dramatic. Uh, talking to Fred Mywald, uh, you know, he told me. That that's the one thing in his Air Force career. And, and by the way, Fred Mywald uh, retired as a full colonel. Mm-hmm. He was uh, base commander at uh, Offutt Air Force Base in, in oh, yeah. Nebraska. And uh, Fred remembers this story very well. 
at least the, the basic parts of the plan. You know, I'm sure they told you to keep quiet about all this after it went down. So what made you decide to come forward and, and share your story with the world? Yeah, I was uh, I was under an oath not to reveal this story. Um, we were told it was secret, classified, not to talk to anybody about it, so I, I didn't. Um, then in 1994, I'd got out of the Air Force in, um, let's see, 71. And uh, in 1994, I came across a book, Above Top Secret, by Timothy Good. Oh, yeah. And uh, if you turn to page 300 or 301 in, the, in that book, you'll you'll see the um, write-up on the uh, Echo Flight shutdown. Echo Flight uh, happens to be the other flight that went down. But when I read it, and this was under circumstances of UFOs overhead, when I read it, I thought that that was the incident that I was in. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so... I uh, wrote to the Air Force under, uh, well, actually, um, my investigator, Jim Klotz, I asked him to write to the Air Force under the Freedom of Act. Not mention anything about UFOs, but just ask about uh, documents related to the, the strange shutdown of 10 missiles in uh, 1967. The Air Force wrote back and said it was a classified incident, but uh, since it had been so long and since we've, we've asked, uh, it classified. And, uh, Send us some documents. So they did. They started sending us documents. And um, as a result of that, I decided, uh, well, since my incident has been declassified, I'm going I'm to talk about it. So, so that's what got me started. It wasn't later until I found out that uh, I'd made a mistake. I wasn't at Echo Flight. I was at Oscar Flight. <laughs> so then, yeah, interesting. So now uh, Robert Hastings, now, are these sort of, this sort of story – how you know how typical is this for the types of cases you've collected? What uh, I'll try to do for your listeners is sort of summarize the, the whole UFO nuclear weapons connection. Okay. Uh, there are documents going back at least to December of 1948 that were declassified through the Freedom of Information Act. Uh, documents from the FBI at the Air Force talking about UFOs, saucer-shaped objects. Uh, at the time, the, doc the documents referred to these objects as flying saucers or flying disks. But anyway, as early as December of 1948, uh, they made repeated incursions over the Los Alamos nuclear weapons lab in my home state of New Mexico. Uh, only some three and a half years earlier, uh, Los Alamos invented the first atomic bomb, uh, which was tested, tested in the desert of New Mexico. Uh, two more were dropped on Japan, which ended World War II. So basically, you have UFO activity at the birthplace of nuclear weapons, at least within three years or so of those uh, momentous events. Uh, many other FBI documents, Air Force documents, even CIA documents confirm that other nuclear weapons facilities, including Oak Ridge in Tennessee and Hanford in Washington State, uh, Savannah River in South Carolina, places that produced uh, nuclear weapons-related materials, plutonium and uranium, were also the focal point of ongoing UFO activity in the late 40s into the 50s. Now, when nuclear missiles began to be deployed in the early 1960s, not surprisingly, UFO activity began to at those sites, too. Uh, I have interviewed 
uh, launch officers like Bob Salas, who were at a place called Walker Air Force Base near Roswell, New Mexico, mm-hmm. uh, who in 1963 and 64 were having similar incidents where silent bright objects would hover over the missiles, shine spotlights down on them, uh, terrify the guards. The guards would call down to the launch capsule and talk to the officers and describe all of this. Uh, I've interviewed uh, something like half a dozen launch officers, uh, missile maintenance personnel, security personnel. They're describing the same thing uh, at Walker Air Force Base, uh, F.E. Warren Air Force Base in Wyoming. Uh, there's a document talking about a UFO hovering over a missile site at Altus Air Force Base in Oklahoma, et cetera, et cetera. So the, my point is this was very pervasive, very widespread, and intermittent. Uh, the most famous cases do come from Malmstrom. They've gotten the most publicity, thankfully, uh, in thank, uh, thanks in part, I should say, to uh, Mr. Salas tender and his bravery in coming forward and talking about this uh, in the face of ridicule and the face of, uh, you know, what initially he thought were potential repercussions from the government. Uh, none of my sources, none of the people who talked to me, over 120 at this point, have ever been hassled or, or uh, told uh, threatened in any manner. Uh, I think because the government realizes uh, that could backfire on them if these people are courageous enough to come forward with their stories. Uh, if the Pentagon leans on them, they're probably going to just go to the media and, you know, say, look, this happened, and now I'm being harassed by the government. So my opinion is that that's why none of the people I've talked to and people like Mr. Salas have ever been threatened. But in any case, this has continued in my book, UFOs and Nukes. I basically have a 60-year history of all of this going on, even into uh, the last two or three years. There has been UFO activity up at the Bangor uh, nuclear uh, missile submarine base in uh, Washington State. Uh, repeated sightings of UFOs hovering or flying over uh, the weapons storage area up there where the, the Trident uh, nuclear missile warheads are stored. Uh, flying over the Hood Canal where the missiles or where the uh, submarines are moored and so on. And the most recent development actually uh, comes from I'm not going to mention his name, but he's a former security policeman, Air Force policeman who worked at uh, Area 2, which was Nellis Air Force Base, Nevada's nuclear weapons storage area, who has described for me and Mr. Salas, he's talked to him as well. Uh, This individual has talked about repeated UFO activity at the nuclear weapons storage site up there in Nevada within the last two years. So this has been going on since the 40s. It's continuing to the present. And... uh, not even two weeks ago, a Russian newspaper called Life, a huge circulation newspaper, two million readers, published a story about an incident uh, in the former Soviet Union where, uh, back in 1982, a UFO hovered over uh, an unspecified number of nuclear missiles, and they temporarily activated and were preparing to launch uh, until uh, after 15 seconds the anomaly ceased. Uh, that kind of thing is being described uh, both in both of the former uh, you know nuclear power adversaries during the Cold War the US and the USSR I'm sure it's gone on uh, to the same degree over there it has, as it has here it's just harder to get the information from uh, Russia yeah, absolutely. Now, I had uh, Paul Stonehill on recently, and we were talking about USOs, and I know there's a lot of, like, nuclear submarines and stuff like that. Have you gotten any sort of uh, information regarding, you know, any sort of – I don't know if they necessarily be underwater, but, you know, USOs or UFOs related to the nuclear submarine aspect of it all? 
beginning about 10 years ago, I attempted to uh, focus on former and retired naval personnel who were were involved with nuclear weapons in the Navy. And uh, I just found that I had the door slammed in my face, basically, uh, that these people are very tight-lipped. Um, yeah. uh, I have used the card, uh, the fact that I'm an Air Force brat. My dad was career for career Air Force. And when I approach former or retired Air Force personnel, I sort of say that up front to try to establish uh, some sort of camaraderie. Whether that has helped me or not, uh, they have been far more forthcoming than the Navy people. Uh, I am aware of these reports of the uh, incidents at Bangor and another uh, Navy nuclear missile base on the East Coast called Kings Bay in Georgia, uh, where there are ongoing UFO reports at those two home ports for these the, these submarine fleets. But I cannot honestly say that I've interviewed anybody who I consider credible who who could. Uh, attest to being involved uh, out at sea uh, in, a, in a nuclear missile submarine uh, carrying submarine who uh, could report a UFO incident to me. Okay, yeah, it seems like the Navy's more tight-lipped about all this stuff than the Air Force. In my experience. Yeah, that's what I've heard too, so that's not too surprising. Let's dive into this big project you guys are working on because it seems like, um, you know, that's on uh, the tip of your tongues right now, and this is a press conference you guys are planning to put together for September 27th. I believe at the National Press Club, but you can correct me if I'm wrong. Um, I guess talk a little bit about what your plans are for this press conference, how it came together, and what your goals are with all this. Well, yeah, Robert and I both decided uh, that it's high time we got a group of credible witnesses together uh, that have had direct involvement with uh, UFOs at nuclear weapons sites Mm -hmm. um, like my own, and as Robert said, there are quite a few, uh, quite a few credible witnesses. We're uh, we're trying, to, we're, we're going through that process right now. We're asking uh, these fellows, and uh, at this point, I don't think we want to name too many names. Although one name, I think uh, Robert, uh, maybe you can mention later on. But we think this is important enough to to gather these people together and uh, go to Washington D.C. Go to the National Press Club, and on September 27th, uh, uh, we've already got a room reserved, and uh, we're going to be there. And, and and for a couple hours, we're going to you know invite the press and uh, hand out press kits of the uh, cases of the witnesses, uh, and in addition, we'll have press kits of other cases that, where the witnesses uh, either declined, but uh, we're, we're willing to at least put down their stories in affidavits and we're going to open the book on these things so so we're hoping the press will get deeply involved in in uh, looking into these cases making them as public as possible and uh, just get the word out that's our our main objective is is to inform the public yeah yeah now there's been a lot of ufo press conferences at the national press club it seems in the last five years so Mm. i mean I applaud your effort, but I'm also skeptical in the sense that I feel like that, that they've become cynical to it. I guess the press there or something. Do you know what I mean? But I guess what do you what do you think of that whole thing? Because I mean, you, you got to recognize that there's been at least six mm. press conferences at the National Press Club since 2004 regarding Absolutely. UFOs. Absolutely, uh, there's no doubt the press is skeptical. Uh, the public is skeptical. But you know, my opinion, in my opinion, the the more Credible witnesses, the, the good cases. By good, I mean uh, multiple witnesses, uh, documented cases. Um, 
uh, you know, cases that can be backed up in some way. The more of those that are out there in the public and 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 that the public hears, uh, eventually, uh, I think, and it's just my personal opinion, but eventually I think there will be such a large number of these cases that um, the, the mainstream media won't be able to ignore them. Yeah, sort of like uh, like I had Rich Dolan on the show. He sort of drew the analogy to sh- you need a lot of shots on goal if you're going to score in hockey. So you just right. take as many shots on goal as you can, I guess, right? My my take on it is this. Uh, mm-hmm. Basically, these persons like Bob Salas, uh, all the over 120 people that I've interviewed, were trusted by the U.S. government to either operate or guard weapons of mass destruction. Uh, they were vetted. They were not flakes. They did not have psychological problems. These were stable, reliable people who, in the horrible uh, case, if war had uh, come to pass with the Soviet Union, would have been responsible for launching weapons that would have killed millions of people, and the Soviet launch officers would have killed Americans in the millions. So that's the dire situation that existed had, you know, keys actually been turned and missiles launched. And yet, uh, these same people who were entrusted and vetted by the U.S. government, over 100 now, have come forward and said uh, that UFOs not only monitor nuclear weapons, but on occasion tamper with them, either activating them or shutting them down. And that apparently has gone on in the former Soviet Union. So, you know, since World War II, for decade after decade after decade until the early 90s, the whole world basically was on the edge of its seat, not knowing whether nuclear Armageddon would take place, but knowing full well that if it did, human civilization and maybe even the stability of the environment of the planet would be gone, would be history. And so, you know, humankind has never faced this kind of crisis in its history where weapons finally existed that would allow literally human civilization to be wiped off the map in a matter of minutes. And if, you know, that situation were not dramatic enough, what has clearly emerged is that outside observers flying vastly superior technological craft have been quite clearly monitoring on an, a covert basis, on an ongoing basis, uh, these weapon sites and have been interfering with their functionality on both sides of the ocean. Uh, Mr. Salas and I and, and most of my sources, three at three quarters of the people I've interviewed, roughly, are of the opinion that uh, the technology is so superior to anything on Earth. These clearly are visitors from somewhere else. They've probably been monitoring this planet for a long, long time and have realized just since the end of World War II that we've reached a crossroads where uh, if things go horribly wrong, we could uh, greatly uh, change the course of human uh, destiny. So, you know, this obviously is a huge and major story. Uh, the media has been ignoring it in part because there is an overall skepticism about UFOs on the part of large numbers of people, including reporters. Uh, I think another factor is a, a journalist named Terry Hansen, if you have not had him on, would be yep. a wonderful guest. Uh, he, he has written an authoritative book about how the intelligence community has infiltrated the American media for decades, basically steering uh, national security-related stories of one kind or another in one direction or another, or even suppressing them with the media's complicity. And UFOs definitely falls in that category. So despite the resistance of uh, uh, the skeptical media, the skeptical public, 
behind-the-scenes shenanigans on the part of the CIA, NSA, and other groups. Uh, Mr. Salas and I and others believe that this is a story that needs to be told. Um, I, I sort of view it as water dripping on a stone. Eventually, you wear away the stone, and that's what we're trying to do. Uh, you well, know. Can I add a couple of things to what Robert said? Sure, go uh, ahead. Uh, just to tie in, uh, this is not just about UFOs. It's about nuclear weapons and uh, the abolishment of nuclear weapons. As you know, uh, an agreement with the Russians on, uh, on uh, reducing uh, the stockpile of nuclear weapons ratified by the Senate, and that's going to be a difficult process. But that's, that's the other aspect of this. We want to push for... Uh, the abolishment of nuclear weapons is, is part of this. And the other aspect uh, Robert also touched on was uh, uh, secrecy, uh, just uh, a very deep secrecy involving UFOs in, uh, in a lot of government agencies, and, uh, and there's probably some kind of a, a small civilian group involved, too. Uh, and this, this is such a... a a story of tremendous import that all of us, the, all of humanity, the fact that uh, if these are extraterrestrials, they're visiting the planet, and uh, how, how do we deal with them? And, and that's that's a subject we should all be involved in, uh, something we should all be talking about. Absolutely, yeah, that's for sure. So now, based on what you've said, Robert, it sounds like you dismiss the idea of the theory that some have put forward that maybe these UFO over nuke base sightings were some kind of training exercise. I've heard that put out by, you know, various schools of thought. I guess you, you uh, take it that that's probably not the case based on the advanced technology that you've seen or heard of being it, seen? It, it's it's a completely implausible scenario. The people that advance that, uh, some of them have an interesting agenda. Uh, I will just say probably most of them are skeptical. They don't believe in UFOs in the first place, so they have to come up with a way of explaining away what has taken place. Yeah. But if you if you talk to the eyewitnesses and the ear witnesses, I remember the people down the capsule like Mr. Salas has ear witnesses. They heard over the radio they're scared, they're frightened guards. The guards would have been eyewitnesses to all of this. Uh, you know, I've got over 120 eyewitnesses and ear witnesses who were directly involved in the action, and they say that there is no way that what these objects did, the way they performed, there's no aircraft on Earth that could achieve those maneuvers. I have interviewed uh, at least, I would say, seven or eight air traffic controllers who were at Malmstrom Air Force Base in the 60s and 70s during the period when all of this was going on uh, involving Mr. Salas and the other officers. And in my book, I've got a whole chapter in which... Uh, the taped, you know, verbatim testimony of the air, air traffic controllers were talking about tracking UFOs on an ongoing basis, uh, objects that would cover 200 miles in just a couple of seconds, zigzagging the whole way. I mean, again, there is no aircraft on Earth, Russian or American, that can do that. Um, so it's quite clear that that uh, we're not dealing with a technology that's that's based uh, anywhere in Russia or the U.S. or Samoa. Um, I, I alluded a moment ago to some uh, a subcategory of skeptics, quote unquote, who, if you dig into their backgrounds, have a very interesting uh, connection with the government that they seem to be shy about talking about. Uh, there was a group for many years called PSYCOP. It's now oh, yeah. called CSI, uh, the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry. Uh, the most famous UFO debunker affiliated with them was Philip Klass, uh, who's deceased now, Jim Oberg, uh, people 
like that. In any case, um, they, they publish this, that organization publishes this magazine, Skeptical Inquirer, and uh, I discovered several years ago that the editor of this magazine, Kendrick Frazier, who is listed merely as a science writer in the magazine, had a very interesting day job for 20-something years while he was bunking UFOs. He was also a public relations specialist for Sandia National Laboratories, one of this nation's largest leading nuclear weapons laboratories. And I was the person who really talked about that publicly to the point where a lot of people became aware of it finally. So they present themselves as scientifically oriented skeptics, but if you look into their backgrounds, they have some very interesting connections with both the military and the intelligence community. Jim Oberg, again, a skeptic, quote-unquote, who thinks UFOs are nonsense, uh, did classified work involving nuclear weapons at Kirtland Air Force Base in the early 70s. One of the jobs he had was security officer within his group at the Phillips uh, lab uh, that was engaged in nuclear weapons research. And so, in other words, one of his jobs in the Air Force was protecting nuclear weapons secrets. And uh, coincidentally or not, he has been one of the chief critics of people coming forward that I've talked to who are talking about UFOs at nuclear weapon sites. He's been one of the people to poo-poo it in the most uh, strident fashion. So I simply say, dig below the surface, the leading skeptics who are saying this is all nonsense and that my sources don't know what they're talking about. Look at who they work for or have affiliations with and draw your conclusions. Yeah, well, I just want to get that out there because I figured you'd have a t uh, response to that skeptical take on it. I obviously, you know, if it was some kind of testing procedure, then, you know, why wouldn't you just stick the nukes on the on the, <laughs> on the things that were flying over the nuclear base? It sounds like they're more powerful than jets anyway, so mm -hmm. it doesn't seem to make any sense to me. In my particular case, um, uh, you know, this occurred in March of 67. I, I was on duty there until um, June of 69. So in, in that time period, over two years, we never got debriefed on the shutdowns at Oscar or Echo Flight. And, and that's very unusual because we had briefings every time we went on alert. We had briefings about the equipment, uh, any mods, modifications that were going to be going on, uh, activities in the field, et cetera. We were, we were supposedly completely briefed. And... Uh, after I, I was doing my investigation uh, uh, on on my incident, I, I find that there, there was indeed uh, an extensive investigation going on about why why it was these missiles went down. So if it had been an Air Force exercise, as uh, as you might imagine, the Air Force would have debriefed us on how we performed in this exercise. Exactly. So this, yeah. This was definitely no Air Force exercise. Now, that raises an interesting uh, sort of question here that uh, has been rolling around my head here for the last couple of minutes. Um, it might be interesting to sort of figure out, at least to put yourself in the shoes of the government, at least as far as how their reactions to these events have been or maybe have changed over the years. We'll start with you, Bob. You know, what were the higher-ups, what was their reaction to this whole thing? You said that there was an investigation into it. Was this like something that they... <clears throat> acted like, you know, this is par for the course, that these UFOs show up over our bases, or was it like this is a this is something they've never heard of before and they were freaking out over it, you know, not just the dudes, you know, that you worked with on the base, but, you know, the people above you and stuff like that? Yeah, well, uh, if we're talking about the Air Force as a whole, uh, yeah. I want to make this connection with the Condon Committee, and I've written an article about this. Um, uh, it's on UFO Chronicles if you want to read it, but... Uh, 
the Connick Committee was organized in uh, in uh, the summer of '66, um, and by 1967, they had, uh, you know, they were investigating cases. And one of the uh, investigators, Dr. Roy Craig, was uh, told by Ray Fowler uh, that uh, UFOs had been reported at Malmstrom Air Force Base during the shutdown of of Echo Flight. Uh, I don't know if he mentioned Oscar, but I know he mentioned Echo, and. Uh, you got to look into it. So Roy Craig, uh, dutifully as part of the Conan Committee, in, in, uh, came to Malmstrom Air Force Base in October of 1967, and was told by uh, uh, Colonel uh, Lewis Chase, who happened to be uh, "quote unquote" the base UFO officer. By that time, the Air Force had designated certain officers at uh, certain bases to uh, help them with their so-called investigation, and they designated UFO officers. So Colonel Chase was one of these and uh, and told Craig that, uh, no, there was, there was nothing to those reports of UFOs over missile sites and the echo shutdown. So essentially, he, he lied. He lied to Craig. Uh, he knew full well the, because of all you know, the reports that had been made uh, and the ongoing investigation that the Air Force internally was making. Craig basically turned around, and went home. He didn't invest, investigate further. He didn't, he didn't interview witnesses, uh, and he had some names to interview uh, given to him by Fowler. And uh, he just turned around, and went home, and uh, and and they just, they, they, you know, they just whitewashed the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, and I've got I've got documentation on that. I mean, I've, I've got a lot of document and supporting evidence about that. And again, you can read about that on UFO Chronicles. As far as my immediate squadron commander, when uh, we were returned to base after my incident, I walked into my squadron commander's office. I was ordered to go there. Uh, there was a member of Air Force Office of Special Investigation there with him. <clears throat> Uh, now, Colonel Eldridge, who was my squadron commander, was an uh, XB-17 World War II pilot, uh, fought in World War II, and uh, and he was well-decorated, highly decorated. I, I had a lot of respect for him. He was white as a sheet. He had no idea what had happened or why. So um, certainly, you know, he was not aware of of, of why this happened. Just this ties in with what Bob is talking about, and um, I think it would be appropriate to mention it. I'm not sure which of the press conference participants you had in mind when you said I could mention someone, but I'm going to go ahead and mention Bob Jamison, who appeared on Larry King with Bob Salas and myself and another individual. Uh, in any case, Bob Jamison was at Malmstrom when Bob Salas was there. Uh, unlike Bob, who was a launch officer, Bob Jamison was a targeting officer who basically uh, would would program the guidance system so the warheads would hit their targets in the Soviet Union had they been launched. In any case, uh, roughly three years before Bob Salas even went public, I had never heard of Bob Salas until he appeared on sightings program with Jim Klotz uh, in the mid-90s, I believe 1995. In any case, three years prior to that, at one of my lectures in Merced, California, in the audience, Bob Jamison attended and came up to me and said, uh, I was a targeting officer at Malmstrom. I heard you allude to a shutdown uh, mentioned by Raymond Fowler at the base. I was involved in bringing up that that miss the group of missiles uh, over the course of 
time. I interviewed Mr. Jameson. Uh, he did. He was invited to appear on Larry King with Bob Salas and myself. In any case, three years before even Bob, James, uh, Bob Salas went public, Jameson was telling me that he was called down to the missile maintenance hangar. Uh, an entire flight of missiles had gone down. Uh, when he arrived at the hangar, everybody was buzzing about UFOs being sighted around the shutdowns. Uh, he uh, eventually was officially briefed to that effect. Uh, the MIMS, the uh, missile maintenance commander, said uh, none of the targeting teams, maintenance teams, will be allowed into the field until UFO activity, uh, UFO reports have ceased. In the meantime, Jameson went to a temporary command post that had been set up, set up in this hangar and overheard a, a radio exchange over a couple of hours between uh, Air Force personnel uh, on site at a place, uh, a canyon near the base, uh, Belt Canyon, uh, a little town of Belt, where a UFO had landed on the same night where, uh, when further east, uh, over 100 miles further east, uh, all of Bob's missiles were shut down. In any case, because that uh, Belt Canyon incident was publicized the next day in the Great Falls Tribune, we can pinpoint the date of the Oscar flight shutdown, and it was October, or excuse me, March 24th, uh, the evening of the 24th in uh, 1967. And uh, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, Bob, that in some of the documentation that you got, uh, from Roy Craig's papers and files, uh, that date was provided to him, March 24th, as a shutdown incident date. So Bob Jamison told me, you know, explicitly that they were told by their briefers, their commanders, that UFOs had been involved in the shutdowns. They were told that if they were on the way out to the missiles to repair them, uh, if they saw a UFO on the road, they were to report it immediately. If when they were at the site and were bringing the missiles back up, they were to, all of them with the exception of the guard, get down in underground uh, through what's called the personnel access hatch into the missile silo uh, and leave the guard outside who would report by radio what the UFO is doing. Uh, so they were given explicit orders and instructions as to how to respond, all involving UFO involvement in the incidents. So, um, you know, and all of this was told to me, uh, you know, before Mr. Salas came forward. So there are, you know, persons who have attacked Mr. Salas and say that there's no evidence for what he says, no corroborating witnesses. That's simply untrue. They either have an agenda uh, to try to destroy Mr. Salas' reputation or they simply are unaware of the facts. But there are credible persons, former military officers who were involved in these incidents, and they all point to a UFO involvement with the shutdowns. Now, Bob, Roberts sort of alluded to this. What's it been like for you as a witness to sort of have to deal with the uh, slings and arrows of the skeptics and even the, you know, the ufologists who are just very, you know, They'll put you through the ringer just to make sure you're telling the truth. I mean, what's what's it been like for you as a witness to have to go through that kind of experience? Well, I'm uh, I, I just rather <laughs> I kind of chuckle with some of the skeptics. Uh, you know, we were on the Larry King show together, and uh, we had uh, uh, Bill Nye, the Science Guy, on there. Right? Oh boy! And. and uh, <laughs> Larry King, uh, I love the guy, but uh, he li- he likes to have little surprises now and then. And, and somehow, Bill Nye, the science guy, got hold of some document having to do with, uh, I think it was the um, air chiller unit that had a problem. He got a re- hold of a report and pointed to the air chiller unit as the cause for the missile shutdowns. 
Well, <laughs> that, that's just way off base. Um, the air chiller unit had has nothing to do uh, with missiles going offline. Matter of fact, we have a, a very sophisticated system of um, of checking the cause of, of why they went down, uh, and it was guidance and control system failure. Somehow, uh, the UFOs were able to uh, uh, interfere with the, the guidance systems of each of these missiles individually, and it's uh, it's just an amazing thing. It's a, just a phenomenal thing that they were able to do. So uh, the problem is with the skeptics is they don't uh, do their homework. They simply don't understand the depth of uh, of the incident and um, we've in in my case we've got a lot of documentation all i had to do was was read my book and uh, and look at the documents that i've got in in the appendix of that book and uh, they would have a, a better understanding but uh, so most of the skeptics most of the criticism i get are from people that just have have not done their homework was there any sort of interaction uh, you know, after the show with, with the Bill Nye guy? Because, I mean, if I were you, I'd be pretty pissed off. I'd be like, dude, you don't know what you're talking about. Well, <laughs> no, I uh, more or less ignored the guy. I mean, I, you know, my understanding, and I don't I don't mean to, to make an issue out of Bill Nye because I don't know him that well. I just met him before the show. But my understanding is he doesn't even have an advanced scientific degree. And yet he's, he comes on a lot of shows as a, as a kind of a science expert. I don't think he really is. So, I, no, I just kind of ignored him. What about you, Robert? Did you say anything? You seem like the type who would, who would find him over by the vending machine after the show ended and, you know, give him a couple well, shots to the ribs or something. What happened here? Uh, Bob, <laughs> uh, the, Bob Salas, Bob Jameson, Bob Jacobs, the, the third Air Force officer, and myself, all yeah. of us, Bob's or Roberts, were on the first 30 minutes. Right. Uh, they brought... Bill Nye on the last 10 minutes of the first half hour segment, at which point we were all removed with the exception of Bill Nye. Uh, I had to immediately catch a flight, so I was whisked back to LAX to catch a flight. I didn't get to talk to anyone, uh, but um, I know that um, I don't think Bob was on the second 30 minutes, if I'm not mistaken. I think there was uh, Stan Friedman and some other people on with Bill Nye, so... Uh, we were, you know, I didn't have a chance to interact. There was really no point. Um, I've spoken at over 500 colleges and universities since 1981. Invariably, I will get self-appointed UFO experts who, with all due respect to their expertise in their own fields, uh, astronomy, physics, psychology, know absolutely nothing about my field and try to come across as experts. And I've just learned, other than asking them, you know, in front of the audience, whether they've ever ever studied the documents or interviewed any witnesses, and demonstrate to everyone present how ignorant they are. That's really all you can do because their mind's made up. There's no point arguing with them. Uh, there's a there's a fair amount of arrogance in academia. This does not really apply to Bill Nye because of his lack of advanced degrees. But in any case, there are people who spent their entire lives in academia who, you know, their whole uh, well-being, their whole sense of self-worth is predicated on being the intellectual in the room who has the answers for everything. And when they come across someone like me, you know, who uh, graduated from college, almost got a master's degree, but certainly doesn't have a doctorate, that they view me as a germ, you know, something yeah. that is just to be, you know, kind of scraped off their shoes. So that's that's the that's the reality of the situation. All right. Well, I just, you know, I figured I'd ask. You never know. Sometimes you catch a little nugget or something when you're off the air with some of these guys, you know.
I'm Bob Slidell. This is my associate, Bob Porter. Hi, Bob. Bob? You're listening to Banal of America Audio. This is, uh... This is heavy duty, Doc. This is great. Uh, does it run like on, on regular unleaded gasoline? Unfortunately, no. It requires something with a little more kick. Plutonium. Uh, plutonium. Wait a minute. Are you, are you telling me that this sucker is nuclear? I was taking a look at some of your previous interviews that you've done in other places, uh, Robert Hastings, and I saw that you had an interview with uh, Atomic Energy Commission Supervisor Chuck Lytle, uh, Chet Lytle. Right. In 1998, and uh, he had some interesting revelations in that, and uh, I don't believe we talked about that on our previous interview, so why don't you talk a little bit about uh, this interview you had with Chet Lytle. I've got a whole chapter in my book uh, on this, but uh, to summarize, uh, Chet Lytle worked for the Atomic Energy Commission uh, for many years. His uh, first involvement with nuclear weapons was during World War II. Uh, He was an engineer involved with the Manhattan Project, which created the first atomic bombs. Uh, he, he created, his company created the explosive lenses, as they were called, which would uh, focus a, the nuclear uh, part of the detonation uh, into, basically, there were two, co- two halves of a uranium or plutonium core that had to be fused together to create a crit- critical mass for a nuclear chain reaction. To do that, what Czech created were little lenses of high explosive that would detonate electronically all at once to create this this fusion. So he also, after the war, worked for the CIA, for the Department of Defense, Department of Energy, on many contracts uh, uh, involving technical-related issues. In any case, in 1990, I was introduced to him by Kevin Randall, uh, the Roswell researcher, and Don Schmidt, who was his partner at the time. Mm-hmm. And during the course of his dinner, Chet just kind of nonchalantly whispered in my ear, I know about some nuclear weapons-related UFO cases. So I pestered him to interview, you know, to allow me to interview him. He held me at arm's length for nine years. Uh, he basically felt he had said too much or didn't want to say any more than that. But yeah. eventually he, cons- he consented to being interviewed. I did go to his offices uh, in Albuquerque and clipped a microphone on his tie and talked to him for two hours. And most of what he told me was uh, incidents involving UFO sightings at atomic or nuclear, thermonuclear weapons sites including at the Nevada test site. But in the course of this conversation, uh, he suddenly let it drop that he had been personal friends with William Blanchard, who was the colonel and the base commander of the Roswell Army Airfield when this object crashed in July of 47. And according to Lytle, uh, he was pretty good friends with then uh, later on General Blanchard. And apparently in February of 53, they were in Alaska together doing nuclear weapons-related work. And in the course of one conversation, uh, Blanchard just told Chet Lytle that, indeed, this was a crashed alien spaceship, that four bodies had been recovered. And, uh, you know, I was startled by all of this, but he went on to say on tape that this indeed took place. Um, he further said that in the course of his job with the Atomic Energy Commission at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, actually Wright, uh, yeah, it was Wright-Patterson at that point in the early 50s, the wife of his military aide actually worked as the secretary for the general who was involved with keeping the, the craft and the bodies under wraps. And after he went on tape with all of this, I tried to press him for some names, uh, names of the people, and that's where he drew the line. About a year later, maybe close to two years later, I went to ask him, tried to ask him follow-up questions. He basically said, I can't tape this conversation. Uh, I reminded him that he allowed me to do the previous one. 
And he said to me, after you and I met Mr. Hastings, I was paid a visit. I was warned not to discuss any of uh, thing involving Roswell or UFOs in general with either you or Mr. Schmidt. Uh, Mr. Lytle would not tell me who visited him, what affiliation, whether this was, you know, military, CIA, he wouldn't tell me. Uh, and, and basically said, you know, I've, I've still got contracts with the government. I don't want to screw it up for myself or my son who now runs the company. And, and that was the end of it. Yeah. So I, I set up interviews with him over the phone. I'm assuming that someone got wind probably by monitoring my phone uh, that I was going to be speaking with him. And uh, just more or less leaned on him not to not to repeat the, the error that he made. Well, I guess it's just lucky that you got your stuff while you did. Then I guess you know. Yep. Yeah, it's on tape. Yeah. So you know, we pulled a fast one on them there. I guess right. It's <laughs> <laughs> um, cash, just cash, can't whatever you can get. You know. Exactly. Exactly. Well, how the whole Larry King interview even come about in the first place? Because uh, it seems like the you know the media is pretty. Not interested in even getting into the nuclear thing, probably because they know that it would freak people out pretty badly. So I'm surprised that you even got a, a shot at Larry King. So how'd that even come about? In January of 2008, there were a number of sightings in Stevensville, Texas. Uh, I was giving the lecture there uh, about a month later, and Larry King's staff got wind of the lecture, contacted me. I could not give uh, an interview that night because of the program I was doing, but I... I uh, had them call Bob Salas. Bob went on by himself uh, in, uh, what, I guess late January of 08. And then uh, I had ongoing contacts with Larry King's producer and uh, told her about what I was up to, and she had me and Bob. Well, she basically gave me a blank check to bring on anyone I wanted to, so I picked Bob Salas, Bob Jameson, and Dr. Bob Jacobs, uh, all ex-Air Force personnel officers, to come on with me and talk about nuclear weapons cases. So that was the chain of the event. You'll probably uh, get into this in a minute, Bob. I'm going to ask you, what, what was it like for you going on the Larry King show? Uh, said uh, Robert just said you went on solo once. Uh, you know, what's Larry like, and what you know? Did you get any sort of indication how he felt? Because I've always sort of thought that, especially lately in the last couple of years, that you know he's he's kind of he's kind of on our side in a little bit. I think he really wants to sort of push the UFO story and, and try and get into this. But I mean, you know, you had interaction with him. So what what was that like? Right. Yeah, I talked to Larry uh, off camera uh, uh, for quite a while, and uh, Larry is very interested in this subject. Uh, my sense is that he's pretty much a believer that there's something going on here. Uh, of course, but he's a showman, and uh, so uh, one of my objections about the way he, they produced his show is that they've got these uh, cartoonish type things showing UFOs and, and kind of... Uh, you know, a laughable way. Uh, but that's part of the showmanship, part of the show. And the other aspect to it, of course, is that on on the Larry King show, he usually has the skeptics on and a whole series of witnesses uh, or other people that uh, only get uh, small sound bites and, and we don't get an opportunity to really go in depth in, in, into our stories. But that's as right. far as Larry King himself goes, uh, I, I really enjoyed his... He's got a, a high interest in this subject, and I really enjoyed being on his shows uh, two times. I, I was just going to reiterate what Bob said. There's, you know, unfortunately, uh, they, the producers feel they have to have on multiple witnesses, uh, multiple persons, and so everyone gets just a few words. There's not really no follow-up. Uh, you don't really get to present a cohesive case. 
Uh, now, there has been tentative interest expressed by his staff. I won't get into the details in having Bob and I and some of the press conference participants on in September. Uh, we were actually supposed to be on the week before Michael Jackson died, and when he died, everything was canceled. So Bob and I would have already been on twice. Uh, in any case, I'm hoping that we will be, be on in the fall. I just read yesterday, apparently Larry King is retiring this fall. Yeah, I just so, was going to ask that. Yeah, so... We, we may have a limited opportunity, and I suspect that everybody and his brother, uh, you know, dealing with every subject under the sun are trying to get on during his last few episodes, so uh, who knows, but we'll see. Yeah, I'm sure it's going to be a lot of Lady Gaga and uh, LeBron James, so if you can <laughs> if you can trump those two, then uh, you're in good shape. As we've sort of established here, in the 60s, in, in Bob's specific incident, they shut down the, the missiles. Now, kind of like to, to throw it to what I had said earlier about if, if the reaction in the chain of command has changed, has the, for lack of a better term, reaction of the missiles changed over the years? Like, are they still able to shut them down or mess with the controls of them, or is that something that the military may have been able to figure out a way around, based on, you know, the witnesses you've talked to? Uh, okay, well, the only thing I, I, can, I think I can uh, interject on that is uh, we've, we've found out that uh, as of 1972, Two, which was uh, what five years after the incident, mm -hmm. uh, the Air Force was still involved in uh, in looking at the causes for the Echo and Oscar shutdowns. And I got I get this from a, a, a good source. He he was at uh, a particular base uh, where where this investigation was still ongoing, and and the Air Force was still trying to figure out how to. Uh, Modify the weapon systems, the missiles, uh, so that this wouldn't occur again. Now, whether whether or not they've succeeded, uh, your guess is as good as mine. I got out of the Air Force in 1971, 1971, and um, and so I've I've had no official contact with uh, with the Air Force. What about you, Robert? Based on the people you've talked to, does it sound like these the tinkering with the weapons is still going on, or is that something that maybe, like I said, uh, you know, like maybe the military's figured out a way to shield the the weapons from any interference like that? I have heard uh, from a former launch officer who was at F.E. Warren in 1993-94 about uh, repeated UFO incursions and rumors, but nothing more, rumors of missiles being impacted in terms of their functionality. But he was not directly involved, um, and so I could not say, you know, with any degree of, of confidence that that was taking place. But the rumors certainly were ongoing. Uh, I happened to be at Malmstrom uh, last November uh, 2009 for the first time when, since 67 when my dad was stationed there. I had been on the base in all those years. In any case, in the company of a retired uh, missile maintenance guy, uh, whose name I won't mention, uh, I had a conversation with an active duty security policeman who said that there was a UFO sighting that he personally witnessed at Oscar flight where Bob was 40 years earlier uh, in, in sometime in uh, 2007. However, because he is active duty or was as of last November, uh, I told him I didn't really want to pursue this and, and potentially jeopardize his career. And hopefully he will contact me. We have contact information for each other. Hopefully he'll be in touch after he leaves the Air Force. So there's this frustrating built-in delay where people uh, feel they have to wait decades, and I, I can't blame them to, to come forward and talk about all this. So what you tend to hear about more recent incidents are simply the basic report, a sighting of a UFO by 
you know, civilians and or military people at a given site. But as far as locating people who could tell you much about what happened, it's probably years on average before they'll, you know, I'll, I'll just locate them by happenstance or, uh, you know, sheer dumb luck. Yeah. And my opinion is that I, I doubt seriously that the Air Force has solved this problem completely. Um, and the reason I say that is because of a uh, story I heard from another witness who uh, doesn't want to become uh, known, uh, but he's very credible. He, he's another uh, uh, targeting officer, um, and he was working on the missile, uh, I think one of Echo Flight's missiles, uh, trying to bring it back up to alert status. Uh, he was down in the uh, missile tube, had a guard upstairs. The guard shakes the, the ladder going down to the, to the missile bay, where uh, the, the maintenance bay where he's working. And uh, he's scared to death. He asks the, uh, this fellow to come up, and he, he comes up the ladder and sees this uh, bright orange globe-type object hovering above the uh, site. Uh, the guard's scared to death. The, the guy that's working, uh, this witness, uh, looks at it and says, wow, and then goes back down the, the ladder and I asked him why he wasn't so scared. He said, I don't know. But he went back down, uh, continued his procedures to uh, bring the missile back up on alert status. And he said uh, he he went he was going through his procedures, and he it, he, he could feel a kind of this uh, static electricity uh, in the in the air. It was a, a palpable uh, electrical feeling <laughs> coming down the tube and. Every time he'd get to a particular point in his uh, checklist, uh, the missile would would, would go uh, down again. In other words, he couldn't complete uh, the proper tests, and he kept doing this over and over many times. And again, when he got to a particular point in the checklist, it would shut down again. And to me, this points to the fact, and, and he pointed this out to me too, that the, whatever these objects are, they they know very uh, well how our systems work, how the missile systems work in, in great detail. So my guess is the, the Air Force has not been able to solve this problem completely. Yeah, okay. Now, at the risk of getting too speculative, what do you think is the motivation behind these craft, if you will? Are they just... I mean, I can understand sort of flying over uh, and and sort of doing you know reconnaissance and surveillance of the of the missile sites and stuff, but but tinkering with the controls and everything else seems dangerous to the point where you wonder why they would even do that. If it's, if it's is it is it inadvertent on their part? Doesn't sound like it. You know, are they shutting them down to send a message? I've heard stories where they activate them, so it's you know not. I mean, so I'm I'm confused <laughs> as I as I'm sure, as I'm sure we all are. So I guess you know what what's your speculation well, on what what this is all about? Yeah, I'll take it first. I guess um, uh, my speculation, and again, is is just speculation, is that they're just trying to send us a message. Uh, they obviously their uh, technology is far far advanced of ours, and uh, they probably could have done a lot of damage to our weapon systems. But they they didn't. Uh, all they chose to do in my case was simply to uh, disable them temporarily. Uh, they were brought back up within a day, a, a, about a day, I guess. Uh, uh, and it it was simply to, a message, uh, I think, uh, to, to let us know that uh, we have to eliminate our nuclear weapons. That's the conclusion I've come to from uh, 
from just thinking about this over the over the years. Robert? That's my opinion as well. I, I think based on the statements I've gotten from over 120 people who were involved in one incident or another in one capacity or another, three-quarters of them do believe that these are beings from somewhere else who are wagging a finger at us and the Russians and probably other nuclear missile powers, weapons powers, uh, saying basically, you know, that you're playing with fire. Uh, you know, if you actually go through with your threats and use these things against each other, you could risk human civilization being destroyed and, and screwing up the planet for a long, long time with radioactivity. So I think that's what's going on. And the fact, you know, people have said to me, well, how come they don't just land on the White House lawn um, or in the Kremlin courtyard and say, you know, we're here, we're, we're real, we don't want you to have nukes, get rid of them. Uh, the fact that that has not taken place tells me there's a larger agenda. I think ultimately whoever they are intend open contact with humankind. Uh, they realize that if they suddenly do it in one fell swoop, there could be adverse consequences, whereas if they slowly over several decades allow themselves to be seen in the sky, you know, on an ongoing basis, more and more people get used to the idea that they're real and they're here. Um, but at some point they'll, they'll, you know, make no doubt about that in anyone's mind by doing something or some collective government announcement around the world will admit that this is real. But in the meantime, given the, the way that the Cold War went and the development of nuclear weapons after World War II, I think the potential for human catastrophe and planetary destruction just went through the roof. And whoever they, these guys are, who have been watching us probably for thousands of years, decided that they needed needed at this crucial point in human history to kind of step in on a, a low key, covert basis, uh, you know, out in the countryside in Montana and. and Donk a few nukes and send a message to the Pentagon or donk a few nukes in Soviet Ukraine and send a message to the Kremlin. And, you know, at the time this goes on, very few people know about it because of all the military secrecy. So they make their point, these guys in the UFOs make their point to both Washington and Moscow without large numbers of people around the world being real, realizing that this is going on. Um, if it weren't for courageous people like Mr. Salas and, you know, pain in the asses like myself who feel this <laughs> needs to be talked about, you know, public wouldn't know about this. I mean, very few people have known about these documents that I alluded to uh, about UFO activity in the 40s. Those have been in the public domain for 30 years. Probably not one in a million Americans know about them. To take the, the speculation a little bit further then, um, now I'm no student of the history of nuclear proliferation, but I have a feeling that either one of you guys probably knows, I'm sure that either one of you guys knows more about it than I do. So I guess the the question, as I said, to keep it in the speculative realm is, has there been any sort of government reaction to this message? I mean, have we had a downgrading in the number of nuclear weapons? I know we're interested in keeping Iran and North Korea from getting nuclear weapons, but, you know, has there been any sort of sign that the government's leaning away from nuclear weapons that maybe we could draw the dotted line to these warnings, if you will? Uh, well, of course, yeah, this is really speculative because, uh, of course, uh, nuclear policy is, um, is uh, well, it's not, not classified. I guess the policy is uh, open, but uh, what whether or not uh, this has had an effect in government, I, I like to believe it has. Uh, uh, there, there was uh, the, the total number of nukes has peaked. It, I think it peaked in the um, 
I'm going to say the uh, 80s maybe, uh, and and since then, um, there's a good website. Uh, um, um, let's see, it's uh, Atomic uh, Scientists. Uh, it's called something like that. Mm-hmm. Bulletin uh, of Atomic Scientists. Yeah, Bulletin of Atomic Scientists. Thank you, Robert. Uh, it has graphics that shows a definite decrease in the total number of nuclear weapons now. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean there's uh, less of a hazard because the number of nuclear states has increased. Uh, is increasing, yeah. and uh, as you know, uh, Pakistan and India have nuclear weapons. Uh, Israel, which has, doesn't claim to have them, but they do have nuclear weapons. Um, right. And Iran's trying to get them. So uh, that's the real worry. Uh, it's not the number, total number, but. Uh, and then again, we've got a uh, political situation in, in, in Congress. Uh, the Senate uh, hasn't ratified this agreement between Russia and the United States yet. And and who knows whether or not the Senate will ratify it. it it's those kinds of things uh, that I think should make all of us nervous. And uh, again, that's another motivation for me personally to try to get word out on, on this. Uh, let, let's get behind the idea of of going for abolishment of nuclear weapons, which I think President Obama has has uh, iterated. Yeah, yeah, I think that is one of his uh, big. I, I would simply add that if you look at human history and how wars have started, there are so many times where, in the most uh, bizarre, unpredictable manner, suddenly you've got millions of people dying because somebody misinterpreted the other guys. They thought they were going to do this, so they did a preemptive strike or. Uh, you know, there was just a lot of uh, miscommunication involved. I've got a whole chapter in my book that talks about nuclear near misses in yeah. the last 30-some years where for one stupid reason or another, either we or the Russians almost pushed the button and started World War III until at the last moment. I mean, sometimes it came down to like three minutes. Uh, someone realized uh, a training tape exercise was put into the computer at NORAD, and this, these weren't really nuclear missiles coming over the pole. I mean, that's straight out of the movie War Games, but that actually happened at, at NORAD, uh, I forget the date, 84. In, uh, in any case, that has happened at least 20 times uh, between us and the Soviets. So the point is, as long as nuclear weapons exist, there's always a potential for something going catastrophically wrong. I would also add that, uh, you know, it's not said publicly, but uh, any power like the Russia or America who has large numbers, they want to keep them because their strategists think it enhances their ability to throw their weight around the world to control situations. But at the same time, they hypocritically say that other states shouldn't have at least, you know, one or two pitiful nuclear weapons. Uh, you know, so uh, obviously there's a great deal of hypocrisy and just ignoring the fact that as long as we have them and feel it's justifiable and Russia feels it's justifiable, how can we say and expect these other little dinky countries to to, to not build their one or two bombs? It's just not going to happen if we can, you know, unless we just, you know, take the moral high ground and lead the way to nuclear disarmament. Exactly, yeah. Now, we've talked about nuclear weapons and nuclear uh, submarines. What about nuclear power plants? I've heard stories, you know, surrounding Chernobyl, but uh, have you heard any stories regarding nuclear power plants and UFOs? I'll briefly say and then turn it over to Bob. Uh, I don't research those per se, but I have in the appendix, one of the appendices in my book, uh, half a dozen cases, including the Chernobyl incident, 
Uh, I think Bob knows about that. He can address that for your listeners. Uh, in any case, yeah, there seems to be ongoing UFO interest in commercial power plants as well, uh, both in the U.S. and abroad. And uh, if one Googles, you know, commercial power plants, nuclear power plants, UFOs, you'll see that there is a catalog of cases that 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 suggests that pattern or that link. Okay. Bob? Hey, yeah, I'll mention two things. Well, one, uh, as far as Chernobyl goes, and I think we got this information recently from our friend in uh, Russia, that there, there are witnesses that saw UFOs above Chernobyl even before the accident and after the accident. Uh, that's all I can really say about that. There, uh, there supposedly are witnesses that have seen them there. The other, the other thing I'll mention is uh, that a few years ago I went to uh, Tucson, Arizona, University of Arizona, to look at the uh, records of uh, James McDonald, Doctor James McDonald, oh, yeah. mm-hmm. and uh, I listened to a lot of his audio tapes, and he he inter- he has interviewed uh, a few witnesses who happened to be uh, living near uh, nuclear power plants, uh, one in particular in the East Coast, uh, uh, who, again, saw UFOs over over the uh, power plant. So, again, it, it may be that they're just pointing to the danger of, of nuclear period, you know, uh, uh, nuclear materials, and that we have to be careful. Uh, and, of course, we, we have a problem with, with storing uh, uh, nuclear materials now that are a result of, uh, you know, generating uh, nu- uh, in, in nuclear power plants. Oh, like radioactive waste and stuff like that? Radioactive waste, exactly, you know. Yeah. The, the story, uh, the interesting thing about Chernobyl, Chernobyl in, my, in my understanding, is that um, in the early 90s, uh, there were a couple of publications, one in Ukraine, one in the Soviet Union, uh, uh, actually, it would have been Russia at that point, uh, in which in which former nuclear radiation monitoring personnel came forward and talked about being at Chernobyl, Chernobyl within an hour or two of the explosion of the reactor. Uh, radiation is drifting drifting across Ukraine all the way into because of the winds up into Scandinavia. And the story that was published in these two, the, the information published in these two stories was that radiation readings had been taken at the explosion site prior to the appearance of this UFO, and they were, I'm going to say, 4,000 millirentkins an hour. I think that's correct. In any case, uh, after this spherical-shaped object, brass in color, appeared directly over the damaged reactor, according to this witness, uh, shot down two crimson-colored beams of light into the damaged reactor, sped away. This all took about three to five minutes. Uh, they monitored the radiation again, and it had dropped by two-thirds. And the gist of the article was that these technical personnel involved with monitoring the situation could not explain in terms of scientific knowledge how radiation could drop that dramatically. Uh, it, simply because of the appearance of this object. So those were the stories that circulated. And as Pop said, apparently there were sightings of UFOs at the site even before the explosion. Uh, so there's, there seems to be a very interesting, uh, you know, link in that case and others. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, very strange, very strange. And I know some people point to the Chernobyl thing and think that the ETs or whatever are going to stop any nuclear war if it breaks out. But I take it from you guys' opinion that we probably shouldn't, <laughs> we probably shouldn't rely on the ETs to stop a nuclear war if it if it if we're on the precipice of it. 
uh, regardless of how they feel about nuclear weapons, right? Yeah, I, I agree. We, we shouldn't de- depend on ET stopping a nuclear war. And, of course, they can't be everywhere all the time. And, uh, right. and there may there may be some dirty bombs being developed. And uh, even if there isn't a war, there, there, there could be serious damage from uh, exploding dirty bombs in major cities. Yeah, absolutely, for sure. Yeah. You, you said, Tim, you said you were a little confused about the reports of some missiles being shut down while others were being activated. Um, to my mind, uh, and there are these reports where missiles were activated in Soviet Ukraine in October of 82, uh, I've interviewed a man named David Shure, who, like Bob Salas, was a missile launch officer at Minot Air Force Base, not Malmstrom, uh, in the mid-60s, who said that his missiles were temporarily activated while a UFO was, according to his guards, topside, moving from missile to missile. Uh, I'm of the opinion that, you know, there was no attempt to launch those missiles. At the very least, they were simply trying to scare the hell out of the people down in the capsule, and, you know, the reports would make their way up the chain command, so uh, there would be a very serious situation reported high level yeah. Pentagon, uh, you know, that, hey, not only do they shut them down in this case, but what they, these things were preparing to launch for a few seconds, and that's exactly what apparently happened in Soviet Ukraine. So um, this, uh, I think I mentioned a little bit earlier, this, this Russian article that appeared two weeks ago, it's posted at, at uh, English translation is posted at UFO Chronicles website. If one Googles recent Russian article, uh, about UFO uh, sightings at Soviet and American uh, nuclear sites, um, or just some number of those words, recent Russian article, UFO, you'll see this article that I had translated. I helped had the reporter help me translate it in English, where she's talking about uh, the missiles being activated there. Her opinion, and her name is Inessa, Inessa Kornienko, she agrees with me. I think maybe Bob agrees that... Uh, whoever were in the UFOs were basically trying to figure out how to launch the missiles, and they did shut down the launch sequence, but they gained that knowledge. You know, they learned how these missiles are can be activated and shut down, so there was no effort really to launch them, just to learn more about them and probably at the same time scare the hell out of the people involved. Right, exactly, yeah, because if, if they wanted to launch them, they would have launched them already by now. So, right. you know, I mean... They can keep shutting them down. Well, like you said, they, they could really seriously damage them probably to the point where you, they'd be unusable. So who knows really exactly what their what their deal is. But that's really kind of what we're all in this for, right, to figure out, <laughs> try and figure out what their deal is. I just want to ask you, Robert uh, Hastings, now you've been doing this UFO nuke research for a while. What's been the reaction of the UFO community to your stuff? Because it's pretty groundbreaking material as far as, you know, you've done a lot of legwork and, and dug up a lot of – witnesses on your own here and, and sort of, uh, you know, pioneering a whole new realm of UFO study. So I'm just sort of interested on a sociological level what the reaction of the people in the UFO community has been to your stuff. Uh, the overwhelming response that I've gotten is positive, and uh, my target audiences really are people outside of ufology. When I'm at colleges and universities, I always contact the local media, uh, which open up, opens up the program to local communities, large and small, in addition to the student bodies. So I have a pretty good cross-section of ages, educational backgrounds, and so on, and, you know, people 
whatever their preconceptions might be when they walk in the door, 90 minutes later, they're sitting there very stunned looking and with their mouths open because I've just presented document after document and witness testimony after witness testimony talking about UFOs at nuclear weapon sites. So, you know, if people let, let me lay out their, my case, they're, they're all overwhelmingly favorably impressed. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, well, I've been since we first talked uh, three years ago, for sure. We're pretty close to the close. Let's sort of reiterate here this uh, press conference you guys have coming up. September 27th, 2010, in Washington, D.C., at the National Press Club. Um, you know, give a little preview of what, what you're going to have there. Just uh, some witnesses. Bob, obviously, you're going to be there. Robert, you're going to be talking about your research and uh, try and engage the press a little bit about this, right? I want to make sure uh, we mentioned the uh, Robert's website. Uh, it's uh, www.ufohastings.com, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, there we're requesting donations uh, to fund this effort. Uh, we're doing this as a grassroots effort. We're not connected with any organization. Uh, we're, we don't have a sugar daddy supporting it. Uh, so we're asking the public to uh, to get involved and donate some funds so we can make this thing happen. Robert, I'll, I'll let you kind of summarize the kinds of witnesses that we'll have. I, I think we don't want to give away too much. Uh, I've talked about Bob's uh, Jameson, who was the targeting officer who helped bring up the missiles at Malmstrom, where, where they were shut down at Oscar flight when Bob Salas was involved. He's going to be one of the participants. I'll mention Colonel Charles Holt. He's best known for his involvement in the Bentwaters incident, uh, walking around through the woods with a team of security policemen uh, chasing uh, objects that, among other things, one of the objects they saw in the sky moved toward the Bentwaters weapons storage area and shone down beams of light into it. Uh, and we've got other witnesses, eyewitnesses, and persons who can attest to uh, officers who, who were aware of missiles being shut down at Malmstrom. One uh, gentleman who was out working on a missile site when a, a disc-shaped object came over his head and hovered, scaring the hell out of his group. Uh, those are some of the people who will be talking at the press conference. Uh, I don't want to give away too much uh, until the press conference itself, but as Bob said, we are going to have press kits that will uh, be some 30 to 40 pages in length talking about not only not only these incidents uh, of the participants that they were involved in, but other incidents throughout the Cold War era. Uh, all of our witnesses have sworn out legal affidavits. Uh, those will be presented in the press kit. And so it's going to be a very credible presentation, and we're hoping that, uh, you know, unlike uh, some of the other conferences that I won't name who had less uh, credible offerings, these are all rock-solid witnesses with military credentials who operated weapons of mass destruction talking about UFOs. So I think our presentation will be unique among the ones that have been held there. Yeah, I hope so. I hope so uh, that, that that's the view of the media. I mean, obviously I know that's the case uh, from talking to you guys and talking about the witnesses and stuff. I'm concerned just about the malaise of the media with this subject, you know, with, especially down there at the, at the press club. But I'm hoping that it's a go and, and that it works out well. I think the press conference is a great idea, too, because what I've been saying for a while, and I'm sure you guys can share this point of view, is that to emphasize the national security implications of the UFO mystery is really important, and in uh, some segments of ufology don't do that aspect of it. You know, they see it as the brothers of light coming to help us or something like that, and, and that may be the case, but, you know, sticking with the facts that we have as it is right now, there's definitely a national security implication to what you guys are talking about, and that might be the best way to sort of engage 
the public and the media into giving this thing a whole new fresh look. That's a very good summary. Uh, Tim, I, I agree with you 100%. There's a nexus here, as I said, uh, not just the UFO phenomenon, but uh, the nuclear weapons problem that we've got worldwide and also the extreme secrecy that we've got in government. You know, we've got a president that said uh, we're going to have more open government. Well, we want to see we want to see him take some action in that regard uh, on this issue. Um, so hopefully this is going to be enough to uh, to interest the mainstream media. That's what that's what we're trying to get. Now, have you guys heard from anyone outside of the people you've talked to that are you know that are in the military that sort of are like whistleblowers? Have you ever heard from anyone you know within the government that, uh, with knowledge of this sort of situation, showing concern over it or or knowledge of the situation? Speaking for myself, uh, again, uh, the, the great majority of my witnesses were in the field and involved in the experiences. It seems like the higher the information is kicked up, uh, people get more and more tight-lipped. Yeah. Um, I always laugh when I read online or hear on TV programs about people who have these high-level sources who know everything about UFOs and every detail about what the Pentagon and the CIA are thinking. Well. Every now and then you get a rare hit like that, Victor Marchetti, who an ex-CIA official who talked about UFO activity and rumors of crashed UFOs and so on. But most of those rumors and stories and alleged sources, uh, you know, that's just too good to be true. People who shoot their mouths off at that level just don't end up, uh, you know, they, they don't stay in their jobs long. Um, so there are rare exceptions, but you have to... Um, Deal with the witnesses you have uh, when you have highly credible and courageous people like Mr. Salas and the people that I've talked to. You know, that's you're already more than halfway there in terms of establishing credibility for the subject. And if you want to hold out for the highest levels of the Pentagon or the CIA coming forward, I think you'll be waiting a long, long time. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, all right, now. UFOs and Nukes is the book from Robert Hastings, the website with a lot of information there on the press conference as well is ufohastings.com. Aside from the press conference, anything you got cooking, uh, Robert, that you might want to mention, speaking engagements or uh, follow-up to the book or articles that you're working on or anything you know that you want to plug here? It appears that I'm going to be at Oxford University in England in November, a very prestigious school, obviously. The school itself doesn't want to touch my subject matter with a 10-foot pole, but there's an alumnus who is going to rent a hall for me on campus. Uh, another benefactor, another uh, sponsor is flying me to England, so apparently I'm going to land at Oxford and hopefully create a stir. We'll see. Uh, that's, that's the big thing uh, for the fall for me in addition to the press conference. Well, that would be great, because maybe then you can open up some new sources over in the U.K. as well, given their nuclear arsenal, yeah. And, I'm just and, hoping to avoid the eggs and tomatoes. <laughs> and, Bob, what about you? Obviously, the press conference, um, is, is Fate of Giants, that's still available for people, or is that out of print now? No, no, it's, uh, well, it's uh, uh, print on demand, I think. Oh, great. So you, you can still order it through Amazon.com. Uh, uh, no, I, I don't have any uh, major events planned uh, that I know of at this point other than my summer vacation, which I'm looking forward to. I bet. Good Sounds for you. Good. Sounds good. Yeah. Well, I can't thank you gentlemen enough for coming on the show. I know it was sort of last minute, but I'm really glad we managed to get it together and uh, get both of you here on the program. Robert, it was a thrill to catch up with you again and talk to you about the UFO nuke connection and all this new sort of different areas of stuff that we hadn't got the chance to cover before. 
and uh, I'm really happy that the book's out, and I hope folks go out and pick it up because it's, I'm sure, just packed with information, and be sure to check out our previous interview at BOA Audio. And, uh, of course, the website ufohastings.com is where folks can find out more about you. Bob Salas, Robert has already said it numerous times, but I'm going to personally here commend you for your courage and stepping up to the plate and telling people your story. I know that I'm sure that you've had to deal with all kinds of naysayers and troublemakers over the years uh, who are not happy with what you've had to say, but you've, you've stuck to it, and I really respect and appreciate that, and I wish you both the best of luck with this press conference in September. Hopefully the mainstream media will wake up to this situation and give it a serious look and start to alert the public about what's really going on here with UFOs and nuclear bases. So thanks again for coming on the show, guys. Thank you, Tim. Thank you. Appreciate it. That does it for this week's edition of BOA Audio Season 5. Big, big, super huge thanks, of course, to Robert Hastings and Bob Salas for coming on the show. Be sure to check out Robert Hastings' website, www.ufohastings.com. For more information on their press conference, scheduled for September 27th at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. Moving right along now, it's time for BOA Audio listener feedback, but this episode is so fucking late to get to you guys out there that I'm going to skip listener feedback this week. I will definitely bring back listener feedback next week because I have two awesome emails from BOA Audio listeners, one who is over in Shanghai, stunningly enough, and he has some great things to say. So we're going to definitely have listener feedback next week for you. I already have the stuff picked out, but I want to get things rolling along here. If you want to get in touch with me for BOA Audio listener feedback or just to, uh, I don't know, shoot the breeze, you can contact me via boaaudio at hotmail.com or go to Benall of America, B-I-N-N-A-L-L of America.com and click the contact button. Or if you are a forum fan, join up at the official BOA forum, theusofe.com. It is BOA's paranormal playground, theusofe.com. Here's the URL once again, T-H-E-U-S-O-F-E.com. I'm also on MySpace, Twitter, and Facebook. Find me on there if you are a part of those social networks. Before we get into the thanks part of the show, I will drop some knowledge on you hardcore BOA audio listeners who are tuning in here at the end of the show. This week's episode is number 526, which means we are closing in fast and furiously on the season finale of BOA audio season 5. I've been kind of debating on what number to end the season on. Some years it's 31, other times it's 33. I think last year was 34, but I'm aiming this year for 33, which means we've got seven more programs left here in Season 5. Of those seven, the next three are already either taped, scheduled, or on the verge of being scheduled. So they're pretty much locked in, which means we have four slots left. I'm going to try and do it like we did it last year with the final four of season four, this time around the final four of season five. If I'm feeling ambitious, maybe the final five of season five, but who knows? Who knows? Of course, the final run of guests will be the cream of the crop, the A-lists in the world of Esoterica, leading up to hopefully what will be a grand slam of a season finale here on BOA Audio Season 5. So that's a little peek behind the curtain on what's going on here with the program, keeping you informed 
on what to expect as the summer of 2010 unfolds, and we head to the season finale of BOA Audio Season 5. Now let's do the thanks portion of the show. Allow me to tip my cap to the outstanding BOA staff, Leslie, Chiron, Regan Lee, Joe V, Tina Senna, Rochelle Hawks, Richard Thomas, A.M. Murphy, Marla Pena, our contributing cartoonist, Andy Carollin, and our webmaster, Jeremy Boston. We've gotten just a ton of really constructive feedback from the folks who have been checking out BOA 2.0, so if you haven't gone to the website, I presume you have by now. I don't know how you would not have noticed BOA 2.0, but it's there, and we want your feedback on it. We're making some changes over the course of the summer. Don't worry, folks who have been writing to us with constructive criticism. We are hearing your pain, and we are trying to find ways to satisfy everybody who visits the website. So stay tuned to BOA 2.0. It's an organic, changing beast, my friends, and it frightens me. I'll be honest, it scares me. And, of course, go to Been All of America for awesome writings from the BOA staff. I don't have time to preview them all right now. They're great, and uh, there's tons of them. So you can find that app in All of America as well. We say it all the time, it should be on a bumper sticker. If you're only listening to BOA Audio and you're not reading the columns at Benal of America, you're only getting half the story. BOA, make it a part of your everyday search for esoteric news and opinion. If you're listening this far into the program, you know what comes next. It is the call for donations. I did not hide the hidden call for donations in the midst of the program this week. We just did not have the time to fool around with that stuff. But I'm hoping to do it soon as we addressed at the end of last week's program. Nonetheless, I need donations, folks. Let's face it, I'm hurting here financially. Times are tough. Putting this show together is wearing me down. And as the website grows and the program grows, trust me, my friends, the costs of this whole enterprise grow exponentially with the audience. So how can you help us out? That's simple. There's two ways to donate to us. If you're into the online scene and you don't mind using that methodology, you just go to Banal of America and click the PayPal button. Let's say you don't trust the internet and you want to donate via snail mail. Here's how you can do that. You send your donations to Tim Banal, B is in Boston, I-N-N-A-L-L, Tim Banal, P.O. Box 232, Pinehurst, Mass, 01866. And the way to spell Pinehurst, if you're a little confused, is P-I-N-E-H-U-R-S-T. So altogether now, it's Timbinall, P.O. Box 232, Pinehurst, Mass, 01866. I say this all the time, folks, but I mean it. No donation is too small, and all donations go towards keeping BOA and BOA audio up and running, freely available, and commercial-free for all of our great readers and listeners the world over. Next week on the program, it's going to be a wild one, folks. Our guest is William H. Kennedy, and I'm simply calling the topic Occult Observations. The gist of it is, William H. Kennedy has been studying the esoteric for like the last 30 years. He's written a bunch of different books, contributed a lot of different articles to various publications. He's hardcore, and he's got an exhaustive website. It's WilliamHKennedy.com. Just once you go down that rabbit hole, you're never going to get out. He contacted me a long, long time ago. I just never had a chance to talk to him until now, and I was just tremendously entertained by the conversation. I haven't sat down to edit the interview yet, so I can't really even begin to touch on all the points we talk about in the interview, but some of the rough tent poles of the conversation are the satanic elements of the Catholic Church, 
his friendship with the late Father Malachi Martin, the impending emergence of a new world order, his thoughts on UFOs, secret societies, hidden occult messages in the mainstream, and tons more dark elements of esoterica. Altogether, it really is quite an episode of BOA Audio. You definitely want to tune in next week. William H. Kennedy's Occult Observations on BOA Audio Season 5. And on that note, we close the book on this week's edition of the program. A thousand apologies for the problems in getting the program out to you folks over the last week or so. I try to avoid the week-to-week scheduling, and that's why things go haywire when guests can't appear at the last minute. It was crazy time. Nonetheless, thank you so much for tuning in this week, folks. We're going to try and get back onto a normal schedule here throughout the summer as we can see the finish line of BOA Audio Season 5. And that is, of course, thanks to all you great folks out there who are fueling the BOA machine. The BOA Audio listeners, you guys are the best. Thank you for making this program a part of your esoteric audio playlist. I hope all my American friends out there had a great 4th of July. Until next time, this is Tim Benall, thanking you for listening and signing off.